Shalom, Chaifra. So we're going to delve into some amazingly deep ideas tonight, but I want to start off with a story. And the story is of a man who goes to war, and he fights in a war. And he does his service, and he's about to come home. He calls up his parents. And he tells his parents, listen, it's been a couple of years, I finished my duty, I finished my service, I'm coming home. His parents say, that's so great. We're looking forward, we're going to throw a party, it's going to be amazing. When are you coming home? He says, I'm coming home tomorrow. They're looking forward. He says, I just have a friend, and I want to know if I can bring this friend home with me. And the parents say, of course, you can bring anyone with you, we're just excited to see you. And he said, I just want to let you know that this friend of mine, he's missing an arm. He had an arm amputated, something happened while he was out at war. He's missing an arm. Parents look at each other and they say, that's okay. You can still bring him. You can still bring your friend. And he says, I just want to also let you know that this friend of mine, he's missing a leg. His leg also got amputated and he has a lot of disfiguration on his face. Is it okay if I still bring him? And his parents talk about it, think about it, say, you know, we have your little sister and she's not so old. I don't know if she's going to be able to deal with that. Is it okay if you don't bring this friend? So the son said, of course, sure. Next day, they go to meet him at the airport. And all the soldiers come off the plane. And they're waiting. They don't see him. They don't see him. They go over to the officer and they say, we're looking for our son. Do you know if he missed the flight? Or we, we just don't see him anywhere. And just then, they, they see a casket being pulled off the airplane. And the officer, the officer says, you didn't hear? You, you didn't hear what? What do you mean? Where's our son? The officer points to the casket and says, your son committed suicide yesterday and he's in that casket. Parents can't believe it. They realize what happened, of course, is that he wasn't making that phone call about a friend. He was making that phone call about himself. And they start crying and they start saying to themselves, oh my gosh, if he would have only framed it or phrased it as, I don't have an arm, I don't have a leg, I'm disfigured, of course we would have taken you, of course there's always a place for you, you're, you're our son, you're a child. There's always a place for a child. And we're coming to El, we're in El, we're heading towards Rosh Hashanah. And so many people, they don't feel worthy. They don't feel worthy of connecting to Hashem. They don't feel worthy of becoming great. They don't feel worthy of connecting to a higher form of their own self. They don't realize that Hashem is our melech, but Hashem is also our father, and there's always a place for a child. And this idea is a beautiful idea, and it's also a profoundly deep idea. And what I want to do today is I want to go way deeper than the beautiful, theoretically fluffy idea of Hashem loves you. Because everyone will, will have different reactions to that idea. Some who are more emotionally tuned will connect with that idea. But those who are intellectuals or those who are looking for something more, they want more than just Hashem loves you. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean that there's always a place for you, that Kaddish Baruch Hu loves you? What does that mean that 
that Elul is, is a place for you to connect to Hashem. So what I want to do is I want to go deep. I want to go really deep. And I want to go so deep that this is probably going to be a long share. I will tell you that this is going to be a long share. And you're probably going to need to listen to the recording at least once. Because there are different types of shirim. There are shirim which ask a question, develop an idea, say, you know, five to seven different stories or little nuggets, and then close up. And then there are shirim which are just disorganized thoughts, just ideas. And then there are shirim which go deep and build spider webs, where you have a question that opens up into an idea, which connects into sub-ideas and connects into the inner infrastructure of deeper Torah thought, deeper Torah das, deeper Torah wisdom. And when it comes to something so fundamental and so root, sometimes we need to say, okay, the normal f- normal format of a 45-minute shear that develops something beautiful and then just says goodbye, that's not enough. We're going to go deeper. And I will tell you that the way that I used to listen to shirim of course I still do, but the way that I start to build my own inner das, my own inner framework of Torah consciousness, is when listening to a, a shir which is a real shir, where every single word is meaningful and substantive and thought out and everything interconnects with everything else, a one-hour shir can turn into an eight-hour or 20-hour shir because I would listen to every single sentence Pause, break it down, interconnect it with everything else I know, continue, break that down. And you start to realize what a true shear is. That it's not just sharing ideas, but everything is interconnected, everything is developmental, everything connects to everything else. And when you find a Torah thinker that does that, you want to start breaking everything else down into its components and interconnecting with everything else. So everything here is part of something bigger and obviously can interconnect with all the other shirim that we're giving. But everything in this shear is part of different aspects that interconnect with everything else in this shear. So to truly, truly appreciate this shear, take notes. Listen to it again. And start to do that in your own mind. Start to build interconnectivity. Start to build oneness. Start to intertwine everything you know with everything else you know. If you have inner contradictions, confront that and either reject something that doesn't make sense or refine and qualify something that you realize because of two principles that don't seem to connect, you need to intertwine, synthesize, and create a more holistic understanding of those ideas so that they can coexist within yourself without that inner contradiction and there's a there's a great idea that the opposite of truth is sheker but the opposite of a great truth is a great truth and i like to think of it as the opposite of a great truth is a great truth but when you put those opposites together you get a greater truth which we've talked about before is teferis oneness of different truths but if you want to go from listening to Shirim to becoming Torah, to thinking in Torah, to living Torah, then you have to go from passive listening to active listening, which means both being a passive listener, but then actively being Kona, actively acquiring that Torah, writing it down, thinking about it, contemplating it, talking about it, and getting to the stage where that Torah becomes you. So <laughs> after this after this little introduction, let's, let's delve in. 
So last time we talked about some amazing ideas when it came to Elul, when it came to Shofar, and I realized after, you know, thinking about it that we never really answered one of the questions I posed, which is why the Rambam holds that a stolen shofar is still kosher for the mitzvah. You can still be mekayim, you can still fulfill the mitzvah shofar with the stolen shofar. We said it doesn't make sense. You can't. It's usually a problem of mitzvah babavera. You can't use something which was done for avera for a mitzvah. So I never actually came back and answered that question, and I wanted to just put it on the record. And the answer is pretty obvious if you listen to the shir, which is that the mitzvah of shofar is all about the kol, it's that which is infinite, that which transcends the physical vessel of the shofar. So it's quite obvious that even if the shofar is stolen, you can still fulfill the mitzvah because it's all about that which transcendent ethereal coal beyond the physical vessel of the shofar. And many of you probably thought that the answer was obvious because you listened to the share, or perhaps you thought that the answer was beyond words, <laughs> a true coal shofar. Uh, but just in case, I wanted to make sure we got on the record. But it actually brings us forward because we're going to continue some of the ideas from last week's share. Because last week, we started to develop some ideas of El. What makes El so unique? We talked about how it's a unique time of connecting to Hashem. But and you don't have to have listened to last week's share to fully appreciate this year. But I would say to beyond fully appreciate this year, to get to a deeper level every aspect of Torah interconnects. So obviously, if you listen to last week's share on Ellen Shofar, this week's share will take it a step further. If you didn't listen to last week's share, you can listen to it a different time. But we mentioned some of the interesting, well-known hints that Chazal and the Rishonim, they bring to, to bring out hints in Torah that, that remind us of El, or that bring out ideas of El. So many of them we mentioned make perfect sense. Ani ledodi vidodi li. The first letter spell Elul. The I am to my beloved, my beloved's to me. It represents the connection between us and the Kosh Baruch Hu. We spoke a little more in depth about it last week. Another one we mentioned was Eslevavcha, Veslevav, and then the next was Zarecha, which refers to, once again, the, the connection between us and Hashem, that the bris that's going to uh, circumcise our hearts, turn our hearts of stone into heart of flesh. It's going to represent the connection, the unique connection that we have with the Kosh Baruch Hu. So the first letters of that also spell El. We have a lot of hints to El that are mentioned, and they make sense. But the Arizal and a lot of the more profound Jewish thinkers, they mention one more, which doesn't seem to make any sense. And the one that which seems to not make any sense is Irmiklet. I'm not going to get to it. First we have to know, what is an Irmiklet? And, and the, the question I'm going to pose is, how in the world is Irmilka connected to Elul? So, so what is Irmilka? So basically, when it comes to the categories, when it comes to the topic of murder, there's different types of murder, and not all of them are connected to Irmilka. So for example, someone murders Bemezid. Someone murders on purpose, with intent. And we're not going to get into all of the different halachic categories here, but if someone murders Bemezid, they don't deserve Gaulus. They might be put to death. If you have Edim and you have Hasra, they gave proper warning. But that person doesn't uh, go to an Yermekla. They might originally go to an Yermekla. Everyone who kills actually you know, originally goes to an Yermekla. But they don't stay in an Yermekla. If someone kills Baones, which means that it was out of their control. There was no intent. It was not even something that they could prevent. It was completely 
beyond their control. And there are different levels of onus, but we're going to just leave it as a general category. That person doesn't need to go to a near miklev. They, you know, I mean, I, I would say one of the, when it comes to Machshav, one of the things they should be asking is they should be asking, why did Hashem choose me to carry out this result? Whatever, I mean, whatever happened, I was a part of someone dying. And even though it was beyond your control, wh- why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu want you to be a part of that? That's something you should be making, you know, a cheshbon within yourself, a cheshbon hanefesh. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu choose me? But in terms of Arimikla, in terms of uh, onesh, in terms of punishment, you don't need that. Shogig Kemezid is someone who does it by accident, but they're culpable. They're more culpable because they should have been able to prevent it. They were careless. So that person doesn't go to Gullus because they don't deserve Gullus. They don't deserve the Kapara. But then we have the category of Shogig. Shogig is it was an accident. It was not beyond your control, but you're not, uh, so to speak, culpable in a way where you're deemed to be a bad person. It's a form of a Vera which needs a Kapara, and you go to Gullus, and you go to an Mikla. You go to exile. Gullus is exile. You go to an Mikla, the city of refuge. Now, we need to understand what's going on here, because Shogig is the one who goes to an Yermiklat, and what is Gullus? What is an Yermiklat? So, an Yermiklat is a city of refuge where the relatives of the person that was killed, and the Goal Hadam is, you know, someone who, who basically is allowed to kill someone who kills Bishogig, someone who kills by accident, this, the Goal Hadam and the relatives, they can't touch you, they can't harm you when you're in the city of refuge. So if this person steps out of the city of refuge, then the Goel Hadam is allowed to kill this person, this person who killed Bishogig. But when he's inside the walls, then he's out. Now, w- w- we can spend a lot of time analyzing the halacha, analyzing the, the deep legal principle of Goel Hadam. So one second, is the Goel Hadam allowed to kill this person who killed Bishogig? Is he supposed to? Is it a mitzvah? I mean, if there's no Goel Hadam, for example, if this person doesn't have any relatives, based in the court system will appoint a Goel Hadam. Literally an avenger of blood. Now, that's a weird concept. What is this idea of Goel Hadam? Why? Uh, we're not going to delve into it now, but it's something to think about. And this person who killed Bishogeg, who goes to Yemeklat, is he really Chayef Misa? Meaning, is the Goel Hadam allowed to kill him, or is there a mitzvah to kill him, because really he should be killed? Like, is the city of refuge a giant chesed? Uh, like, where does the actual principles line up so that we can understand how these things line up? That's something which needs a lot, needs a really sheer in itself. I will say one interesting thing is that the Rambam says that someone who killed Peshogig is not allowed to leave the Irmikla. He's not allowed to. And he says that even if he's a top general, even if he's like Yoav, so someone who's literally important for Klai Yisrael. Even if he's like Yoav and Klai Yisrael needs him, he's not allowed to leave. So the Or Sameach, fascinatingly, when we, we mentioned this a while ago, when we talked about uh, our medical lachasugis, the Or Sameach thinks that this is a proof that you're not allowed to risk your life to save someone else. Now, first of all, a lot of people say even... If you're not allowed to risk your life, you, you definitely should be allowed to risk your life to save Klai Yisrael. So Esther, for example, risked her life, almost was willing to give up her life to save Klai Yisrael, went into Achashverosh without permission, which is basically a death sentence. So the Or Sameach makes that as a trend. Chedish and says that we learn from here 
And the Meshachachma, when it came to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu didn't go down to Mitzrayim until the people who wanted to kill him were no longer a problem. Or some Echshita is that you don't need to risk your life, or maybe you're not allowed to risk your life to save someone else. Right, so that's that's his chiddush. He's, he's super machmer. You're not allowed to risk your life to save someone else. It comes up while you're allowed to, let's say, donate a kidney, donate an organ to save someone's life. So he says you're not allowed to risk your life to save someone else. So a lot of people reject his proof from this Rambam. He says no, no. The Rambam is not saying the reason why you're not allowed to leave an ear miklat is because then a gold adam is allowed to kill you, so it's a risk to your life. He's saying you're not allowed to leave the ear miklat because that is the halacha, that is the din. Someone who kills Bashogig, they need to stay in the ear miklat. The ear miklat is their makom, it is their home, and it's not a question of sakana. It's not a question of, oh, if they leave, they'll be in danger, so they have to protect their life. It's that they need to be in the ear miklat as an end in itself. That is something that has a value, it is of purpose. Now, there's an additional principle which we're going to have to try to delve into a little later, which is that they stay there until the Kohen Gadol dies. So you stay in the Irmikla, you stay in the city of refuge until the Kohen Gadol dies. Now, what does this have to do with El? So the Torah says that the Irmikla basically would reside within the camp of the Levium. And the allusion to Elul is if you look at the Pasuk, which is a source, it's in Shemos Perich Chavalaf, it says, the Asher Lotzada Velokim Analiyada Vesamti Lachamaka. So Analiyada Vesamti Lacha, the first letters of those four words, which are referring to the Irmiklat, they spell Elul. So there's an allusion between Elul and the Irmiklat. Now here's the question. The question is like this What does Elul have to do with Irmiklat? When in the world does El Elul's time of teshuva? It's a time of connecting to Akash Baruch Hu. It's a time of becoming one with Hashem, becoming our best selves. An ear miklat, someone who kills Vishoge, goes into Galus, goes into this makom, and has to stay there until the coin Gadol dies. So what's going on here? What's the deeper meaning? What's the deeper purpose? We mentioned some allusions to Elul that make sense. This one seems to be very abstract, and we need to understand what the deeper purpose of this illusion is. And the way that we're going to understand this illusion is we're going to try to understand the principle of Makom. Because as we've mentioned in the past, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is referred to as HaMakom. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem is referred to as the Makom of the world. And we have many sources of this, the... Mishnah and Brachos says that when it comes to, to aspects of tefillah, you have to have kavana in your libam, lemakum, you have to have intent to daven to lemakum, to the makum, referring to Hashem as a makum. Why? What does this mean, Hashem is our makum? We have a famous midrash that says that Kaj Baruch Hu is the makomo shalom, Kaj Baruch Hu is the makum of the world, the place of the world, the in ha'olam And the world is not his makom. Meaning what? Meaning that we think of Akash Baruch Hu as existing in the world. Akash Baruch Hu is God in the world. No. Hashem is the source of the world, and the world is within him. Now what does that mean? Especially because most people think of God, think of Hashem, as a transcendent being out there in the world somewhere. Maybe they think of him as the physical being, or even if they're more philosophical, he's an, uh, you know, more abstract being. 
supreme intellect, a higher being, whatever it is. We're saying now that no, the world exists within Hashem, but that's also strange. What does that, that even mean? So let's try to delve deeper. And let's build this more systematically. Because we have to think about it as what is a makom? What is a place? So if you want to think about it, you can think of it like this. You can think of it as there's two options of place, of makom. One is a simple understanding that a place is a physical space. You have a, a physical space. For example, a cup cannot exist in the world unless there's a place for that cup. It's a physical space. But there's a more abstract understanding of makom, which is that a place, a makom, is the possibility for that thing to exist. As in, in order for something to exist, there has to be a possibility or a potential. And those two, are, those two concepts are different, but we're not going to delve into that right now. But we'll just say a possibility or potential for that thing to come into existence. At root, a possibility is higher than potential, as in you can argue that potential is in the first stage of actualizing a possibility, and then the fully actualized thing is the last stage. And possibility is before potential. Potential is the first stage of actualizing that possibility, and the actualized result is the last stage. But we're not going to delve into that because that's a that's really a whole topic in itself. But the way that the Ramchal refers to in Klach Pisre Chachma in 26b, Chavav Amebez, or Chavav B, Chavav Bez, Klach Pisre Chachma is organized differently in different ways, but we're basically just going to delve into some powerful principle that the Ramchal develops. He develops this idea that in order for something to exist, there needs to be a possibility for it to exist. And the possibility and the potentiality for the world to exist is within Hashem's ratzon, Hashem's will. Meaning what? Meaning what? That the world does not have to exist. And the Rambam develops this as well. The world does not have to exist. HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose to create the world. The possibility of the world existing, meaning the potential, the root form of the world being able to come into existence is the concept of makom. It's the ability for existence to come into being. So Hashem contains the possibility of our existence, which we refer to as makom. And if you want to think about it like this, especially for someone who's a beginner who wants to think of, how do I think of Hashem? You can think of Hashem as makom, which is the possibility and the source of existence. Now, Hashem is more than that, and we're not going to go fully into this because that itself would require a whole shir. But the Rambam and Ramchab developed this idea that anything in existence can cease to exist, meaning anything in existence does not have to be here. But Akash Baruch Hu is beyond existence. He never came into existence, and he can never cease to exist. He is, so to speak, the source of existence who has to exist, but he's actually beyond existence. And it's a little bit hard to print to words because what is existence? Is existence the physical world? Is existence the anything that is, but the spiritual world is, right? So that's also existence. So Hashem is the spiritual world. No, Hashem is beyond the spiritual, beyond the physical. Hashem is the root that is beyond anything. That's why we refer to Hashem as Ein Sof. Ein, Ayin, 
It's that which is no thing, that which is beyond anything. The world comes into being. That is that which exists. Hashem is beyond the world. Hashem is also within the world. That's where we get to the unique dynamic of Hashem being beyond and within. So Hashem isn't in existence. Existence is actually within Hashem. And HaKash Baruch Hu made space for us to exist. That's, the, that's how creation occurred. Meaning that if you have a full cup of metal, you can't pour anything into that cup. So before Hashem created the world, a lot of people think that there was nothing. Right? Yish me'ayin, HaKash Baruch Hu created the world from nothing. No, before Hashem created the world, there was only Hashem Enon Milando. But when HaKash Baruch Hu created the world, He made a makom within Himself for us to exist. HaKash Baruch Hu gave us space within Himself for us to exist. Now, how, does, how do we understand That's a very interesting question. How much of this world is Hashem? Did HaKash Baruch Hu make a space that was not Him? Was it a literal vacuum? Or was it... HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a space within him that seems like it's not him. These are fundamental questions to grapple with, and these are famous questions that are really, you know, you know all of the Bali Machshava try to delve into this and to really understand what the nature of this creation was, because it makes a big difference in terms of how we relate to this world. But let's let's put it simply like this. Existence, and, and especially the physical world, is an aspect of Hashem, but Hashem is also more than existence. So existence is within Hashem, and we're part of that existence. We are part of that creation. And Hashem is both within the world, but also beyond the universe, beyond the world. And you can actually see this in the word makam. The word makam is connected to makayim. Makayim is something that gives existence. So nothing can exist without a makam. Hashem is the makam, which is makayim, which gives our existence. So kiyum is existence, right? A makam allows for something to be kayim, to exist within it. And Hashem is the makayim. Hashem is the cause and that which allows us to exist in the world. And yakum means to give rise to something, to give it existence. Kum means to get up, to rise. You see it all, the Lashon HaKadosh is beautiful that the words say what they are, what they actually mean. You can see the meaning within the word itself. So HaKadosh Baruch is our makam. But not only did Hashem, not only did Hashem create the world, but Hashem constantly creates the world. Hashem constantly wills the world into existence. So what does this mean? So Nefesh Chaim explains that normally when we create things in this world, we create it and it stays in existence by itself. But when HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving it its existence. So we take bricks which already exist and we are you know, building with it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is giving the brick existence when he builds, when he creates in the mashal, meaning the, the mechanism of creation we'll, we'll talk about maybe later in terms of speech. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is constantly willing existence into being. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu stopped willing existence into being, it would cease to exist. Which means that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is constantly 
creating the world. And if you want to think of it like this, you can think of it as, as the Ramchah puts in Das Tfunos, in the Nches. He says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the only thing which has to, which has to exist, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu uses Ratzon, which we talked about in the past, as the root concept of any process. Root, you know, when you do anything, it always starts with will. The, the initiation of bringing anything into being, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is constantly willing the world into existence. And Hashem can stop at any point willing the world into existence. And you want a great marshal for this? You can do this yourself. Right now, think inside your own head. Create a person. Give him a backstory. Give him clothing. Give him a name. What does he look like? Where is he from? Now, think about this person. Now, stop thinking about this person. He ceases to exist. If you do not will this person into existence inside your mind, you, this person ceases to exist. You are creating this person's existence the same way when it comes to <clears throat> when it comes to Hakadosh Baruch Hu willing us into existence. If Hakadosh Baruch Hu at any point stopped willing us into existence, we would cease to exist, which means that we exist only now because Hakadosh Baruch Hu is literally willing and thinking us into being. I mean, think about a dream. When you dream. The people and experiences that exist within your dream exist only when you're dreaming. When you wake up, it stops. So we exist within HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We exist only because Hashem is constantly willing us into being. And that means Hashem is thinking about you right now. Hashem is willing you into being. So we talked about in the beginning, a lot of people don't think worthy of connecting to Hashem. You're, you're connecting to Hashem, whether you like it or not, Hashem is willing you into existence. The only question is, are you aware of that? Are you connecting to that. And when do we call Hashem our Makom? We call Hashem our Makom whenever we tap into this idea of connecting to a Kaddish Baruch Hu when we don't think we're able to. For example, someone dies. We say, HaMakom Yenachim. Why? Because number one, we don't feel connected to Hashem. Our loved one just died. Number two, we don't feel connected to our loved one because we don't see them anymore. Number three, we don't feel like our loved one exists anymore. So what do we say? Hamakam inachim. Hamakam. Hashem is the, the, the foundation and source and the core of reality. And we exist in a spiritual and physical dimension. And we are connected to Hashem at our root. The person we loved is no longer in the physical dimension but they are in the spiritual dimension, which means that they're still connected to Hashem, and we're still connected to them, and they're still connected to us. So you have a Kodesh Baruch Hu at root, you have the spiritual dimension, the physical, and it's like you know, a projector, it's like an expression, it's like a seed expressing you know, into a trunk, into a tree, and we're in the expressed dimension in the physical world, but we're also in the spiritual, we're also connected to Hashem at root, which is beyond the spiritual. Hashem is within the spiritual and the physical, and our loved one, is now in the spiritual world, but we are connected to them, and they are connected to Hashem, and Hashem is still connected to us. It's a beautiful, beautiful example. We also say it uh, when we say Baruch HaMakam Baruch Hu by the Seir Nayin HaGadah, when we talk about, we're about to talk about all different types of children, the Chacham, the Rasha, Mishen Elishal, the Tam, and we're saying that no matter who you are, no matter you know, what level of spiritual development you are, you're always connected to Hashem, and we're always connected to our children, even if we think that they're distant from us in our ways, when we talk about our children. It's, it's a beautiful time. When we talk about achenu, we say, hamakom yurachin. 
right? We say Hamakam Yerachim because we're talking about Achtos, we're talking about Achim, we're talking about the oneness of Klai Israel. Whenever we're talking about these ideas, Hamakam is always used at very strategic points. And I'll, I'll just give you one last one last idea before we move on, which is that we also refer to Hashem as Hurachum. Hurachum, Vachanan, Hashem is our, he, he shows Rachamim. But Hurachum has also that, that root of, rach, of Rachum is also Rachem. Rachem means a womb. The Kaj Baruch Hu is the womb of the universe. And there's very deep ideas here. We're not going to delve too much into it because we can give one second a whole share in it. But a womb sustains the child. It's the makom. It's, it's the, the place where the child gestates, where the child uh, matures, where the child develops. And a Kaj Baruch Hu is our womb. We are in this world within a Kaj Baruch Hu, both literally and conceptually. We are becoming and growing within a Kaj Baruch Hu. A Kaj, and only because Akash Baruch Hu is giving us sustenance and life, just like a mother gives sustenance and life to her child in the womb. And we have to think about that. I mean, in a deeper way, the universe and us are all becoming and developing just like the fetus in the womb. But the idea of Makam on the deepest level is the intimate connection between us and Hashem. It's how we deeply connect to Akash Baruch Hu. And how do we apply this principle? So here's where it gets really fascinating. In terms of applying this principle, we can take it a step further. We can talk about the concept of Ani. What is Ani? So Ani refers to Hashem as the place of the world. How? Because what does Ani mean? Ani means I. But what is the root of Ani? So An, Aleph Nun, An refers to the concept of a place. So La'an means to where are you going? La'an, to where? To what place? And me'ayin means from where, from what place. And ani means I, but I really referring to what? Ani, my place. My place, my makom. So ani refers to makom. And when we to, and akash baruch is referred to ani, and ani and anochi, we're not going to talk about the difference. Very, very briefly, for those who want to know the difference between anochi and ani, anochi refers to I in, ref, in reference to myself, not in reference to anything outside of myself. So when I think of myself as me, I refer to Anochi. Ani refers to I in reference to other people. So I'm almost positive that I got that right. Uh, there's a whole sheer that we can give on that because it, it gets into very deep ideas in terms of when Hakash Baruch refers to himself as Anochi and when Hashem refers to himself as Ani. But these are references to Akash Baruch Hu as I, as the I of the universe, as the self of the universe. Nefesh HaChem refers to Hashem as Neshama Shal Neshamos, the soul of souls. Hashem is the soul of the world. Just like you have a soul to your body, so Akash Baruch Hu is the Neshama of the world. So what does Ani mean? So when we think of Ani, we can think of Akash Baruch Hu as the self beyond all self, the self of the world the highest root of reality. But when it comes to the concept of you referring to Ani, when you think of yourself, when you think of your identity, when you think of you, it's very, a very powerful principle is the fact that you are above and within. So for example, you are within your body. But if you really start thinking about it, 
you're also beyond your body. And what do I mean by that? I mean that you're in your head, right? You're in your head. But your head's also actually really in you. That's a little bit of a mind twister, right? So what I mean, this is one of these really powerful principles. Your head is where you experience thought. It's where you experience consciousness. It's where you experience being alive. But you're not your head. And you're not in your head. You're actually way beyond your head. Right? You transcend your body. You transcend your head. But you are also within your body and within your head. And if you want to take a step further, your head's actually really in you. Meaning what? Meaning, at least the way you understand your head, your entire world experience, which is in your head, is actually only a very small, limited perspective of what your head is. Because if you think about it, number one, you've never actually seen your face. Think about that. All you know about your face and really your head is based on an experience that you're having, which you think is within your head. So for example, you experience sight through light reflecting you know, on your eyes and giving you an experience within you. And your perception of what a head is, is actually something which you don't know what you look like or what your head looks like or anything. You just know what you perceive it based on your perception through the translation of your five senses. So you know what it feels like, you know, in theory, what it smells like, you know what it looks like, but you don't know what your head looks like. You only know what it looks like based off of the reflection of, of a sight that your brain gives you when you are translating your sight. And you've never even seen your face itself. You've only seen it in a reflection of a mirror. So your entire perception or conception of your head is really within you. Which means that your head is within you. Now that's very abstract, but we can take a step further. Not only is the idea and your understanding of your head within you, but you've had experiences where you are actually within you. So for example, a dream. A dream, you're experiencing a dream as reality, right? You experience a dream as reality. And this dream could be a day, it could be an hour, but it could be longer, it could be a week, it could be a month. People have very long dreams sometimes. And these dreams really took a few moments in, the, in, you know, in this dimension of reality. And they've done studies where they've had someone fall asleep and they've woken them up just a couple minutes later and they told like a long, like three-week journey. Time is relative, meaning what's happening within your dream state is completely relative to time in this world, or at least in this dimension. So this entire dream also is occurring within you. And it's occurring within your mind, within a world that you've created, right? and you've placed yourself within this world, which means that you are existing within yourself. But you're experiencing life. You're experiencing a journey, but you're experiencing it as reality, but it's, a, it's existing within you, literally within you, within your consciousness. So you are existing within you. And when you think about that, what's to say that we're not existing within someone else? 
What's to say that you don't exist and I don't exist within some higher reality, within some higher consciousness, within some higher self, within some higher ani, right? Meaning if you can exist within you, why can't the awake you exist within a higher self, a higher being, a higher consciousness, a higher ani? Which is really the deep idea of existing within and above yourself. So Karsh Baruch Hu also exists within reality, but is also above reality. And these are very powerful ideas. And it's really like levels of self, levels of consciousness, levels of being, levels of existence. And that's really what we're referring to here. And there's a beautiful, beautiful source for this. There's a beautiful Gemara. It's a Gemara in Sukkot, Daf Nun Gimel It says that Hillel would come and we're not going to get into all the details of the Gemara, but the, the basic, just profound, profound line of the Gemara is that Hillel, Hillel, Hazakin, Hillel. We all know Hillel. Hillel's one of the biggest, he's a tzaddik, he's an anav, he was willing to risk his life to just taste the beautiful words of Torah. He gave himself to Torah, he was a man of patience. And Hillel says what? He says, Im anikan hakolkan. If I am here, hakol, everything is here. And the literal, literal translation seems to be that Hillel was saying that once I got here, the party starts. I'm everything. Once I get here, everything's here. You don't need to, you know, with the, without getting into the context of the Gemara, it seems to be that Hillel is being a big Balgaiva. He's saying that I am the most important person out there. And when I get here, everything is here. So it doesn't make any sense because Hillel is an anav. He's not an egotistical, you know, Balgaiva. So what is Hillel saying? And what's even more troubling is that not only is Hillel not a Balgaiva, but he's known for being one of the biggest, he's one of the biggest Balei Anava. He's one of the most humble people in all of Shas, all of Jewish history. So, so what, what's going on here? But here's the powerful idea. Rashi says that Ani is not referring to Hillel, it's referring to Hashem. It's one of Hashem's names. And Hill was saying that, and you can even think of it like Hill's giving a shear. And he's saying, he's telling Klai Yisrael that once HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here, once Ani is here, HaKolka, once Hashem is here, everything is here. He's telling Klai Yisrael, and Rashi is really referring to the fact that he's explained to Klai Yisrael how not to sin with the name of Hashem. We're not going to get you know so into the, all the context because that gets into a couple questions in the Gemara. But the idea here is powerful, which is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is referred to as Ani. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the self, is the great I of the universe, is the makom, is the source of reality. And if Anikan, if the Shechina, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here, HaKulkan, everything is here, which, once again, we need to understand, what does that mean? So the Zohar actually says that Ani refers to the Shechina, refers to Malchus, and if the Shechina is there, then Kol is there. But the concept of Kol, what's Kol? What's Kol? So a lot of the Baal pick up on the fact that Kol always refers to the transcendent, always refers to something more holistic. So, Esav said that Yishli Harbeva, I have a lot. And Yaakov said Yishli Kol, I have everything. When I'm connected to Akash Baruch, I have everything. I'm tapped into the infinite. I'm tapped, in, I'm tapped into Hakol. Kol is the gematria of fifty. We've talked about before that the, the, that the Maharal explains that 
Sphiris Omer is 49, 7 times 7. 7 represents the, the physical reality. There's 7 lights in the spectrum of light, 7 days in the week. There are 7 notes in the musical scale. 8 is Lamala Minhateva. That's why 7 times 7 is 49. We had 49 days of Sphiris Omer. The 50th was the 8th, the, the first day of the 8th week. It's the 50th always represents... It's also Gematria of Yam, of the sea, without getting into all the details of why, why specifically the sea, that which is endless, Yam Shal Torah. But the 50th is that which is transcendent, that which is infinite. Kol represents that transcendent imminence, that transcendent power, that transcendent koach. And we have this famous principle of bakol mikol kol, which also refers to Avram Yitzchak But bakol mikol kol is this concept of tapping into the tapping into makom, tapping into the shechina, tapping in to ani to Akadosh Baruch Why? Because bakol is that we exist within kol. We exist within Hashem. Mikol is we come from the infinite, we come from Hashem, so we exist within Hashem, and everything stems from Hashem, so we are, you know, aspects or manifestations of Hashem Yish, you know, you are from, you stem from the root, and Kol is just the root itself. And the idea here is that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here, if you have the recognition that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is manifest within everything, then you see HaKadosh Baruch Hu within everything, HaKol, Khan, everything is here. So it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. And I'm going to just share one last idea before we take it a step further, because this this principle is, is unbelievable. And I, we're going so deep already that it would be a shame not to share it. So it's a little deeper and it's a little more abstract, so you can, you know, kind of put this as a parenthesis if you're, uh, you know, so to speak, a little tired and want to move on to the next idea. But I'm just going to share this one last principle, which is that the gematria of Makom is 186. So that reason I'll explain something absolutely unbelievable. And the principle is like this. What is a gematria? So first of all, words. A word in Hebrew, a word in Lashon HaKadosh, is essence. In English, a word is a word, but in Lashon HaKadosh, Davar, which is a word, also means a thing. Davar also means thing. Because a word is crystallized essence, crystallized shechina. HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke the world into existence. Vayomer Hashem, Hashem spoke. Why? Because what speech is taking ideas that which is more ethereal and bringing into finite expression. You have an idea which is beyond expression and you form it into words to express the idea into crystallized physical finite form words in hebrew represent essence we've talked about this many times that's why shame a name represents essence neshama something's inner essence now if a word represents essence a gematria Gematria is a numerical equivalent. It is numerical form of that essence. Now, when gematrias aren't done right or they're not explained right, people don't give it respect. And gematria has halachic significance, has spiritual significance. The Basically, all of Machshav is built off of gematrias. The, the Rizal, the Ramchal, the, the Gemara talks about gematrias. But when you just throw gematrias out there, you don't explain the backdrop and the meaning behind it, then you start to say gematrias is just a bunch of fluff. Now, anyone who understands mathematics knows that mathematics literally is the foundation of meaning. Especially, you talk to a, a, someone who's in physics, someone who's in you know, more technical science, 
they speak in numbers. So math is literally translating ideas into its mathematical form. And that's what gematria is. So gematria is the expression of the word essence. Now, there's another step, another principle in Mahshava, which is that a gematria of something fully expressed, meaning the fully expressed gematria of something, is the fully expressed meaning of a word. So let's say a gematria of something is, you know, 10. But if you take the fully expressed gematria, which means you take all the letters of that word and you multiply it by themselves, so it's the gematria of the full expression of that word, you get the fully expressed meaning, the fully expressed gematria of that word. So the, the source of this is actually in the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, it's a Mishnah in Shavuos, in Perik Aleph, it says, Shtayim Shein Arba. So it says four, it says two, that's four. Well, what's two, that's four? Because what's the concept? It's two, but each of these, so let's say you have one and two, but each of these now, because it's a unit of two, contains one and two. So one contains one and two, and two contains one and two, so that two now equals four. And three, three is nine. Why? Because one within that three is has one, two, and three. Two has one, two, and three, and three has one, two, and three. So every, every unit now, every number has that's what the concept of multiplying it by itself. It's the concept of that which is within the thing itself. So the gematria fully expressed is taking each letter within a word and multiplying it by itself. So I'm trying to take you through the steps so I don't just jump to the answer and tell you why I'm doing it. I'm trying to explain to you the, the stages of expression. So for example, Spheres Omer is seven within seven, seven times seven. It's the full expression of seven. That's the idea of fully expressing idea. Fully expressing a number. Now let's say we have the word makam. What's the gematria of makam? The gematria of makam is 186. So the Rizal says something very powerful. He says that when you take Yud Kevavke, which is the four-letter name of Hashem, it's the Shem Havaya, it's the, the root Shem of HaKadosh Baruch The first name that we give to Hashem, the first way of relating to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, from a transcendent perspective. When we take Yud Kivavke and we fully express that, so we take Yud and multiply it by itself, so Yud is 10, 10 times 7, you multiply each of the letters of Yud Kivavke by itself, so you take Yud, then Hey, Hey is 5 times 5 is 25, Yud Kivav, 6 times 6, 36, Hey, 25, 5 times 5 is 25, you get what? The full expression of Yud Kivavke is 186. So the full expression of that transcendent root is the creation of what? A makom, of reality. And what else is 186? Elohim, which reflects what? How Akash Baruch Hu is manifest within this world. It's the expressed, it's the makom, it's the, the, the place of relating to Akash Baruch Hu in a created reality. So the full expression of Yud Kei is both our makom and Elohim. Hashem's relating to us in a expressed, physical, revealed manner. Now, I don't know about you, but that is mind-blowingly awesome. And obviously there are people who don't relate to gematrias, there are people who don't relate to mathematical expression of ideas, there are people who are just so numbed by gematrias, but 
For those of you who are not, and for those of you who don't yet have an opinion, this is one of those things where when you have the ideas as the foundation, the gematria, the expression, it's it's unbelievable. So when Yudkevavke expresses himself into the world, he is both the place of the world and Elokim, the source of all expressuality, the way that um, Bali Halacha referred to Elokim, especially like in the Shulchan Aruch, it's Bali Gvuros Kulam. It's, it's the source of all koach, all power, all, all expressed reality in the physical world. So... Now that we've delved deep into the concept of makom, we can take it a step further. So we understand that makom is is the source of reality, the root of reality. Now we have to understand the connection between Ari Miklat and El. What's the connection between Ari Miklat and El? So when do you go to an Ari Miklat? You go to an Ari Miklat when you go into Gullus. So what is Gullus? So on a very simple level, Gullus is the consequence for murder. When you Kill someone b'meizid, you're chayiv misa. When you kill b'shogeg, you go to galus, you go to your emeklet. Now the question is like this: What is the midah k'neged midah of when you kill someone? Because the the technical way of viewing onshim is that it's a punishment. You do this, you get this punishment. But the deeper understanding is that everything is consequential. You create your consequence. When you kill someone, you create the consequence of now you get killed. When you kill someone, that's amazing. When you kill the shogeg, you create the consequence of going into Gullus and going to Nirmiklat. So you're creating your own kapara, but now you have to understand, so how is Gullus and Nirmiklat a consequence, a mida k'negad minda, of killing someone Bishogeg? So think of it like this. Let's, let's, let's step by step. When you kill someone, let's say amazing. you're killed. Why? Because you took away their place in the world. You severed their neshama from their body. So what's the media connecting with you? What's the consequence? The consequence is that you are separated from your body because you took away their place in the world, so you lose your place in the world. Now, obviously, and this is, a, I mean, first of all, it's a straight up Gemara. The Gemara Baba Kama Daf Pei Dalim Aleph says that when you remove someone's neshama, your neshama needs to be removed as well. So you're chayiv misa because you need to basically get that media connecting with you. You need to lose your place in the world. Now, the qualification, of course, is that they didn't lose their place. They're still alive. They're still in the spiritual world. No one, no one ever ceases to exist. There is no such thing as death. There is no such thing as non-existence. And all you're going to say about Kares being cut off from existence, I would argue, and this is actually quoted in several deep sources, that Kares is the experience of non-existing. So you're actually existing, but experiencing yourself non-existing, which is the ultimate torture, the ultimate suffering of being cut off is you if if you didn't experience yourself being cut off that wouldn't be a punishment it wouldn't be a consequence because you're just not there you don't exp- you can't suffer if you don't exist the real pain of kares is existing but experiencing yourself as if you don't exist now that's a little mind bending but obviously all onesh is a kapara so that you can go to the next stage that's what gehenna is we're not going to go into it right now but it's an experience of cleansing experiencing the pain of what you created and by experiencing that you go through a cleansing process to get back to your root self which you can then move on to the next stage of actually existing with an olamana shamos in a more purified way we're not going to delve too deeply into that so when you kill someone Amazing! You've caused you've caused them to lose their place in this world, and therefore you lose your place in this world. And that's actually the idea of. Of course, they still exist. Hashem is the makom, and therefore we all exist within that makom. But that's the idea of kaddish. Is what do you do when you do kaddish? The world lost a spark of kedusha. They lost the neshama, 
And we say Kaddish, we try to bring that Kedusha back into this world, which is a beautiful idea. But now we'll take it to the next step, Shogig. When you kill someone with Shogig, you go into Gullus. Why? Because you have partially lost your right to exist within the world. What does that mean? It means like this. You killed someone, but it was an accident. You killed someone by accident, but you're still negligent enough that you're accountable. You've caused someone to lose their place in the world, so you're going to lose your place. But instead of fully losing your place in the world, meaning you have to die, you're only going to lose your place where you live, your makam, your physical place in a very contained, conceptual manner. As in, you still lose your place, but not fully. So you have to go into Gaul. So you have to lose your makam. So now you still exist in this world, in your body, and you've lost your physical place of residence, and you have to flee. You go into Gaul. You go into exile. But you're still allowed to live, and you live in an Irmiklat. And we have a lot of precedence for this, because what's the precedence? What's the precedence of losing your makam when you kill? In a sense, Bishogig, Adam Harishon. Adam Harishon, before the Chait, the Ramban explains that we were immortal. We we're going to live forever. There's going to be no death, and there's going to be no death to time. Nowadays, time dies as well. You don't experience your past as if it's happening now. The way time used to go is that it would go like this you'd carry each moment with you and just move forward on a higher level. Take whatever you've learned, take the joy, take the experiences of the past and bring them with you. Nowadays, you have to go back into memories to experience the past. So not only did Adam HaRishon post kill the human being, bring death into the world, cause us to be mortal, the Ramadan explains that before the Chet Adam, before Adam ascend, the physical body was, and the Ramchal explains as well, the physical body was immortal. It could fully contain the soul, and it wouldn't age. As a matter of fact, the Gemara says that until Avraham, people didn't age either. Avraham asked for aging because Yitzchak just looked like Avraham, looked just like Avraham, and Avraham wanted Yitzchak to have his own identity, so he asked for aging. Each of the others asked. You know, Yaakov asked for. Uh, for, for sickness before death so that he'd be able to know when he's going to die so he can bless his children. Very deep ideas. But Adam HaRishon brought death to the world. What happened? When he sinned, when he ate from the Yitzhadas, he brought death to the world. And because he brought death to the world, he lost his makmiya, kicked out of Gan Eden. Cain, first act of murder, killed Havel. Now, obviously, he didn't really know what it means. He, there had never been a murder before, so he can't really say he knew what he was doing. It was this like visceral reaction, just trying to, through anger, do something to Havel, and it ended up with him killing Havel. Now, what was the response? What was the, the Midah connected Midah? He made Havel lose his makam in the world. He lost his makam. He went for the rest of his life. He was in Gullus. For the rest of his life, he was in Gullus. And actually, the irony is that he was killed by accident. Right? The, his great the descendant thought that he was an animal and killed him by accident. Another form of killing by accident. A very interesting parallel. Also, Midikanegamida. But if you want one more fascinating example, 
Tishabav, we mourn the base Hamikdash, and you have to literally view it as if Hamais not You have to view it as if literally someone's dying right in front of you. Someone just died. You have to view it literally like you're in a veil, it's like you're mourning death. The question is, we're mourning the destruction of a of a building, the base Hamikdash. But there's a much deeper idea here. Beis HaMikdash was the Makom HaKadosh Baruch Hu connected to the world. It was literally the Makom, the place of connecting to the infinite, to transcend to the Shekinah, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the soul of the world. And Nefesh HaChaim explains that the only reason why the Romans were able to destroy the Beis HaMikdash is because we already destroyed it. Klai Yisrael destroyed it themselves. Why? Because the... Titus put a zona in the base Amikdash in the Kosh Akdushan. How is that possible? Because we put a zona in our own inner world, our inner mind. We disconnected ourselves from Akash Baruch Hu. We did that in our own inner self, in the spiritual form of the base Amikdash. And the physical base Amikdash just reflects the spiritual root. And because we destroyed that connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, because we destroyed the base Amikdash, the Romans were able to basically just destroy the shell of the base Amikdash in this world. But we were the ones that really did it. So what did we do? We disconnected from Hashem from the world. In a very deep way, we killed the world. Hashem is the soul of the world. What's murder? When you separate a soul from the body, you kill you literally sever the, the connection between the neshama and the guf, the soul and the body. What did we do? We distanced HaKadosh Baruch Hu from the physical world. It was like disconnecting the soul from the body. We killed the world. I'm touching about we mourn the death of the world. If you've never heard that before, that will change, that will change your tish above. Realizing that we're not just mourning the loss of a building, we're mourning the loss of our connection with Hashem. It's the death of the world. The world used to be a fundamentally different. Connect to Hashem a much more potent, real level. You can see the physical reflecting the spiritual. Nowadays, it's much harder. It's a stage of Bechira where you have to really choose to see Hashem. Choose to find Hashem in our lives. And just on a little bit of a side point, I'll share a powerful principle, which is on a deeper level. This, this might shock you. But on a deeper level, creation of the world itself. When the Karsh Baruch Hu created the world, creation itself was an act of Gullus, an act of exile. Why? Because what is Gullus? Gullus is being distanced from your true Makam. When you're in exile, you are distanced from your true place, where you're really supposed to be. And the Maharal explains that there's three aspects of Gullus. One is you lose your place, you lose your Makam. The place where you should be. Number two is you're no longer together and connected as one. So when Klai Yishol went to God, they were scattered. Or we daven for Akash Baruch to collect the, the scattered people from the four corners of the world. That's the Kabbat Shofar, the Kabbat. We, we ask Akash Baruch in that tefillah and Shemanasar to collect all of Klai Yishol together. And number three is in addition to being connected, your place and no longer being one, we're no longer under our own dominion. We're no longer independent. We're subject and subservient to some other power, some other force, some other malchios, some other kingdom, some other uh, government. Some, we're not our own people. We're not subject to a Kaddish Baruch Hu on a political, practical level. Right? A Melech Yisrael is a king whose purpose is connecting us to Hashem and a regular government, regular Melech. Not, their job is not to help us 
directly to connect with Hashem. They might give us some freedoms to do what we want nowadays, especially where we're blessed nowadays to live in a world where most governments allow us to connect with Hashem, but a true Melech Yisrael is, doesn't allow us to connect to Hashem. He passionately helps us. He passionately enables us. He is the, the beacon of hope and light that inspires us and motivates us and drives us to connect to Gash Baruch And when we're in Gullus, we don't have that. But the main, I would say, the anchor of these three is losing our makam. Losing our makam. That is the anchor essence of Gullus. And what happened when Gash Baruch created the world? When Gash Baruch created Adam, that itself, the Baal Machshava talked about how before creation, Adam was, and really everything, was one with Hashem. Creation was creating an experience and also creating a, a perception, and in some sense, a reality, where there's a disconnection between us and Hashem. For us to exist, for us to be conscious, for us to have a sense of I, of self, there had to be a sense of removing the oneness between us and Hashem at least on the experiential level. Bala Machshav actually talked about how the first step after creation was that Adam was given an experience of separateness from the oneness of Akash Baruch Hu. And if Adam would have realized, if he would have understood how, distance he, how distant he was from Hashem, then he would have fulfilled his entire need for Gullus forever. There would have been no longer a need for Gullus. And he would have been able to basically like rocket right back to Hashem. The purpose of reality would be done, and he would close all the gaps. We'd be reconnected with Hashem on the, on the deepest level. If we would have realized and recognized the pain of being distant from Hashem, and that is what creation was—a distance between him and Hashem. But obviously, Adam sinned, and we've talked about before what the the sin of Adam was, why why he sinned, what the purpose of that sin was, and what the repercussions were, what the consequences were. But ever since Adam sinned, we've basically just gone on a, a long descent, a, a continuous increasing of Gullus. Because what happened? Every exile basically continues further into a deeper distance between us and Hashem. Because by Adam, he basically said, you know, this isn't so bad. Obviously, Adam did Shiva, but when he originally sinned, he got kicked out of Ganadin. And Hashem's response was to push him into further exile, right? Meaning, you should say, really. In Ganeidan, he got kicked out into a further galus, out of Ganeidan. And then by the door, Hamabel. They said, you know, they got used to the world the way it is. That's not so bad. So what happened? Hashem pushed him into a further exile. And then Mitzvah Mitzrayim was the next exile. Then the first place at Mekdash, we basically were distant from Akash Baruch Hu, but we said, not so bad. Akash Baruch Hu sent us into galus. Then second place at Mekdash, not so bad. Further goes. Uh, previous generations in Europe got used to the world the way it is. Karsh Baruch's response pushed them into Golas. Every time we get comfortable, every time we exist within a Golas and accept it as our makom, as opposed to realizing that we need to shoot back to our true makom, that we need to reconnect to a higher makom, that we are not supposed to be complacent and okay with the way the world is, but we need to deeply, deeply desire to reconnect in a much higher, more potent, more real way to Akash Baruch Hu, every single time we get more comfortable, Akash Baruch Hu needs to send us into a deeper galos. We might mention a, a little bit later why that is and why the world keeps on getting further and further from its roots. There's a deep purpose behind that.
But there's also a deep sadness, a deep sadness. When you look at the world right now, and we need to really, really choose to see further, to see deeper. It's not easy. It's a Bechira. It's a constant Bechira that we need to choose to see Hashem in every aspect of our life. That's, that's what it is to be a Jew. That's what it is. It's to learn to see the world in a deeper way. But when we're in Gauls, when we go to an Ir Miklat, what is an Ir Miklat? What is the Ir Miklat? Obviously, the, the deeper question is, okay, we understand Gauls. We understand the Gauls as a response to killing someone, Bishogeg. But what's this connection? What, what is an ear miklat? And what's an ear miklat's connection to El? So an ear miklat is a place for someone without a place. Think about it. It's beautiful. You've killed someone, Bishogig. You've lost your life. You've lost your makam. You've lost your social reality. You've lost your purpose, in a sense. You're, you're lost. You don't have a place in the world anymore. You're on the run. Here's an ear mikla. Hakash Baruch Hu says you lost your place. You think that you don't have a place any longer? I'm your makom. You're always connected to me, and I'm going to give you a makom in this world as well. I'm going to give you a place, even though you don't have a place. And even though, in a certain sense, you might not even deserve a place, you still always have a place. So even when you've lost your place, and even Even when in some sense, remember we talked about the goal down might even have a mitzvah to kill this person. It might even be that this person really should lose their place. This person really should die. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, even you, there's no such thing as someone who doesn't deserve a place in this world. And Kodesh Baruch Hu, oh, if you're going to say, oh, what about a person who needs, the person who needs to lose their place in this world because they killed, be amazing, they really, it, it's a kapar for them to actually lose their physical makam as well. But for this person, Kosh Baruch Hu says that you're in this gray area, you've lo- you're, you're lost, you're in a bad place, I'm going to find a place for you. I'm going to give you a place. So an ear mikla is a place for those without a place, and in a deep sense, that's what Elul is as well. Elul is a place for those without a place. It's a place for those who've lost their place. It's a place for those who say, am I really able to connect with Hashem? Am I really able to take the next step in my life? Am I really able to strive for greatness? I don't have a, any reference point. I'm lost. Who am I? Hakash Baruch Hu says, here's Elul. I'm going to give you a foundation. I'm going to give you a place. And we're going to delve deeper into it for a minute, but I just want to take it a step further because going back to Ir Miklat, we're going to delve into Elul in a much greater depth in a minute. But going back to the Ir Miklat, there's a deep idea with the Kohen Gadol because a person who kills Beshogig stays in the Ir Mikla until the Kohen Gadol dies. So the question is why? What does his stay in the Ir Mikla have to do with the Kohen Gadol? Right, once the Kohen Gadol dies, he can leave the Ir Mikla, Goldam, Goldam is no longer able to kill him, and he's able to go back to his life as it was before. Obviously not as it was before, he's on a different level, he's improved, he's you know, achieved a lot in the Ir Mikla. But the question is, what does his life now have to do with the Kohen Gadol? Why is it dependent on the Kohen Gadol's life? Once the coin Gadol dies, now he's able to leave. What's going on here? So here's the deeper idea. The coin Gadol is responsible for the place, the makom of Klai Yisrael. We've talked before how the coin Gadol is the one who enters into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Talk about the levels of reality in terms of physical space, how the rest of the world obeys the laws of physics. But once you get to Eretz Yisrael, it's, it's Haratzvi. It's, it's like a deer. When you take the skin off the deer, like, how does it fit on? The, the laws of physics don't apply in Eretz Yisrael. 
has to fit all of Klai Yisrael. We get to Yerushalayim, everyone's all the regal. The Gemara says it still fits everyone. You get the Azara, and the Mishnah Avos says that when they were standing up, it was all crowded, they bowed down, all of a sudden everyone had space. We've mentioned before how the Musra idea is that when you negate your ego, there's room for everyone, but the deeper idea is that when you get closer to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the laws of physics stop applying. Why? Because the world was created from the Evan Shasiyah and emanated from the Evan Shasiyah, which is located right under the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And the laws of physics don't apply once you get closer to the source of law of physics. The laws of space and time cease to exist in that dimension. And that's why when you get to the Evan Shasiyah, you get to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the laws of physics don't apply at all. Which is why the Gemara says that the Aron took up, had to take up space. There were shirim for the Aron, but it took up no space. It took up no space. The Gemara said, how is that possible? Because there's no space. The laws of space and the laws of physics don't apply. And the Kodesh HaKadoshim, where the laws of physics come into being. Oh, but the coin Gadol goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur. How is that possible? The Pesach says that no man can go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. On Yom Kippur, the coin Gadol represents all of Kaisho as being a Malach. On Yom Kippur, we are Malachim. We don't eat, we don't drink, we don't have Hamita, we wear all white, we say Baruch Shem, Kwamachsulah, out loud, something that only Malachim say out loud. Why? Because on Yom Kippur we are Malachim. Why? Because on Yom Kippur we, tr- we tap into our transcendent perfect root. In this world we are becoming perfect. On Yom Kippur we tap into our root, our potential, the fact that at root we are all perfect, at root we are all Malachim. We are in this world to become perfect, to actualize our potential. But on Yom Kippur we tap into our root. What we're capable of becoming. You, the Kohen Gadol represents all of Klai Yisrael and goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim, a place beyond place, a place beyond space, uh, something that is so transcendently impossible, but Yom Kippur is able to do that. Obviously, when the Kohen Gadol was not on the right level, the, he would unfortunately pass away, which is why they used to connect a rope to their foot, because there was a stage in Jewish history where the Kohen Gadol was not on the right level, was not done in the right way, and... Uh, basically, almost every single year, the Kohen will die when he goes when he went to the Kodesh Hashem. But the idea is that he is the he the Kohen Gadol is the person who's capable of going in and connecting with the source of place, going into the Kodesh Hashem right on top of the Evan Shosiah, and he's responsible for the place of Klai Yisrael, for the source of space, the source of Malkah. The Kohen Gadol is in a deep way the most connected to the makom of Klai Yisrael and the space of Klai Yisrael. And when this person kills Bashogig and he loses his place, the coin Gadol becomes responsible for him. And this person now becomes connected to the coin Gadol. And obviously, we have to like think about why this is and why... Why only once the Kohen Gadol loses his place in the world, why only once the Kohen Gadol dies is this person able to regain his place? I mean, it's strange. When you kill some Shogi, the Kohen Gadol who's responsible for place becomes responsible for you. And once the Kohen Gadol dies and loses his place, now you can go back into the world and regain your place? Like, what's going on? So, I think there are two possible explanations. There could be more. I think one possible explanation is that it's a kapara because the Kohen Gadol's death and losing his place in the world serves as a kapara for him. So remember, you're supposed to lose your place in the world. You don't lose your place as a chesed. And the one who's responsible for you now becomes the Kohen Gadol who's responsible for your place. But now the Kohen Gadol, so to speak, is your makom. When the Kohen Gadol loses his place, the one who's responsible for you having lost your place now lost his place, and it's, so to speak, a kapara for you who were supposed to have lost your place, the Kohen Gadol is losing his place now, basically is 
fulfills that requirement of losing a place for your accidental murder. It's a little bit lumpish, it's a little bit conceptual, but it works, it works. And if you think about it, If the coin Gadol is actually representing you, then someone has actually lost their place because of that accidental murder. So it depends how far you want to say the coin Gadol represents you, but if you want to actually take it all the way, then this works. Another option is that the new coin, the new coin Gadol is providing him with a new place. As in, since there's a new coin Gadol and there's a new connection to the source of place, so Baruch to the Makam of reality, this new coin gadol can now give him an ability, give this person who who killed someone Bishogeg, he can give him the ability to regain his place in the world as well. As in, it's basically a restart, rejuvenation, it's a, you know, start over. It's a good question. I think those are two possible answers. There could be more, something to think about. But now let's, let's take it back to El. El. Elul is a place for those without a place. Elul is the ear miklat for everyone. We all feel, we all know at least, that we've, we haven't tapped into our true potential. We haven't become the ultimate versions of ourselves. As incredible as you are, and as unincredible as you may think you are, both ends of the spectrum, neither of us, neither of those aspects of ourselves, whether we feel like we're great, we feel like we're not great enough, both of you and both of us, whatever, however we want to frame it, no one's perfect. No one's achieved their potential. There's always more we can accomplish. And for those who are great, you can become greater. For those who feel like you're nothing, who feel like you're lost, who feel like Hashem doesn't care about you, Hashem is willing you into existence, is thinking about you right now, knows you're capable of more, and is giving you the ability. El is that ear mikla is giving you a place to become, to restart, to you know get your momentum going. It's all about getting your footing and just starting, making that first right decision, getting into good habits, getting into a good culture, getting into a good environment, start feeding your mind positivity, start learning, start feeding your body healthy food, start feeding yourself healthy emotions, start becoming the version of yourself you know you're capable of becoming. That's what Ella is about. And a lot of us, we, we think that's too late for us. We can't connect to Hashem, we can't become extraordinary, we can't do anything different. I didn't do it in the past. How am I supposed to do it now? Elul is that time where you say, no, 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 it's a wake-up call. It's that show for blow. That you can become something that you've never seen before. Now is the time to start. Now is where Akash Baruch Hu is giving you that makam. And it's Akash Baruch Hu's way of saying that there's always going to be a place for you. And the reason why Elul is right after Tisha B'Av is because right after, we, right after that, that time where we feel the most distant from Akash Baruch Hu, we mourn the loss of the Beis Hamikdash, where we, we basically entered into a state in Jewish history where we are no longer have the Makam Hamikdash. We no longer have that, that deep existential connection to Akash Baruch Hu in the way that we did while the Beis Hamikdash was still, was still you know, fully functioning. It's like you have to, we, we have to mourn the loss of the Beis Hamikdash. But we also have to realize that even though we've lost our Makam and we've gone to Galas, we still have a Makam. And El is that makam for Klai Yisrael as a nation and for each of us as individuals. And that's why if you th- look, and this is why it's, it's beautiful, the source for Ir Miklat being an allusion to El, when it says, the first four, the, the four letters that are in the front of those four words spell El, what's the next word after that? 
that spells Elo. What's it? Elul is our makom. Elul is our makom. And let's take it one last step further. Let's take it one last step further, because there's an additional connection between makom and Rosh Hashanah, which follows directly after Elul. What's the idea? So let, let's keep going. And, and this is why I'm saying we're, we're going to go deep. We're going to keep going. This is going to be a long shear. And I would say that for anyone who who wants to pause here and continue a different time, this is a perfect place to pause, but we're going to go even deeper. And you can think of this as, as a multi-stage share, and it's more than okay to take a break, and obviously the fact that this is being recorded means that you can access it at any time, but I want to take this a step further. Because we've already delved so deeply into the concept of Makkam, and I want to go even deeper. Because what's the connection between Rosh Hashanah and Eretz Yisrael? Think about it. What's the connection? And the connection seems to be very deeply rooted within Chazal. Chazal seemed to say that not only is there a connection between Makom and Rosh Hashanah and between Makom and Elul, but there's a connection now between the, all of this and Eretz Yisrael. How? So first of all, the Gemara says, asks the following question. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Da'af Chesam and Aleph, says, what's the source that Rosh Hashanah is the Yom Hadin? Right? We know it's when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, obviously the Machlokas, whether it's in, by Rosh Hashanah or by Pesach, but we know that, that Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin from Masora, but where do we actually see this in the Torah? Where does the Torah tell us that's Yom Hadin? So the Gemara says where? It says from the Pasuk describing Eretz Yisrael and the Pasuk that basically compares Eretz Yisrael to Mitzrayim. So the fact that the Pasuk says it's a pasuk you can look up for yourself in Devarim Parakir Aleph Pasukir Beis. So the Gemara says that Meirishis means what? Meirishis Hashana Nidon Maya Ma Yeheva Sofa. The Gemara is telling us what? That Meirishis means that on Rosh Hashanah is like a seed. And on that seed, everything for the full year it becomes expressed. On Rosh Hashanah, we are judged, so to speak, is determined what our entire year will become. It's like any root, the, what comes afterwards is always an expression. The physical world is an expression. The physical world is an expression of Torah. We are each an expression of our zayot, at least physically. Each year is like a seed. Each year is like a new creation. Each year is like a new zygote, and it becomes expressed throughout the year. So the question's like this, why, why, why is, why is the, the source of Rosh Hashanah being a Yom Hadin, why is that learned out from the concept of Eretz Yisrael? Why is that learned from Eretz Yisrael? It's very strange. Right, the Gemara, basically the Pasuk at least is comparing Eretz to Mitzrayim. You know, Mitzrayim, they got their sustenance from the Nile. They didn't have to dive into a Gosh Baruch. They didn't have to look up to Hashem. We live in, you know, the Klai Yisrael, whose Makom, whose home is Eretz Yisrael. We have to dive into a Gosh Baruch. We have to look up and connect back to a Gosh Baruch in order to get sustenance. It doesn't happen naturally. Now, <clears throat> the question is like this. What does Eretz Yisrael have to do with Rosh Hashanah? And what does Rosh Hashanah have to do with Eretz Yisrael? And here's the powerful idea in connecting to Makam. Eretz Yisrael and Rosh Hashanah are both 
paradigmatic sources of a certain dimension of reality. And this is a powerful, powerful idea. Eretz Yisrael is the place where place comes into existence. It's the source of our physical makom. Now, you can ultimately break down this idea. I will just qualify by saying that space and time are concepts, but they're intertwined concepts, and it's very hard to separate them. Maral actually says in many places that time and space are always interconnected. But at least from a certain perspective, you can think about them and contemplate them separately, even though they are fundamentally intertwined. But the most potent concept of space emanates from Eretz Yisrael, the Evan Shasiyah, which is spoke about. Uh, Evan Shasiyah, the rock of formation, the world emanates, the physical world emanates from the Evan Shasiyah. It is the source of space and time. It's where place comes into existence. Everything has a place to exist, and that place comes into existence from the Evan Shasiyah, from the Kosh HaGadoshim, in Eretz Yisrael. So Eretz Yisrael is the place where place comes into existence. Rosh Hashanah is most potently the time when time comes into existence. Rosh Hashanah is the point of creation. Now, obviously, creation was also the creation of space. And in order for there to be time, there was also an aspect of space. In order for there to be space, there was an aspect of time. You could separate them. You don't have to. We've actually talked about before, contemplating space without time and time without space. And you could, even though it's very hard to. But <clears throat> Rosh Hashanah is the point of creation. Creation is an act, an act of doing. That's time. The Vilna Gon talks about how beratious the base is the letter of creating time, uh, right? In the beginning, that, that's bringing time into being. Also, base is tunis, multiplicity. Time is, you know, different events, one thing after another. We've also spoken about the depth of time, the different vantage points of how to view time, different whether time is going in a straight line, a circle, a spiral. But time comes into being most potently in Russia. Now, you can ask a question on this because. You can actually say that time was really created on 25th of El, right? Creation occurred on 25th of El, not first of Tishrei, not Rosh Hashanah. So there are different answers. One answer you could give is that man was created on the first of Tishrei, so for us, time begins on Rosh Hashanah. You can also say that the renewal of time each year occurs on Rosh Hashanah. So maybe the original inception of time occurred on the 25th of El, but the renewal each year occurs on Rosh Hashanah. So we now have Rosh Hashanah as the time where time comes into, into existence, Eretz Yisrael the, is the place where place comes into existence, and both of those are the root, tapping into the root concept of makom, of source, uh, of the place of place, the time of time, the, the root of our experienced reality. And if you want to put this in parentheses, Pesach actually connects this as well, because remember, according to Tosos, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, originally decided to create the world and Rosh Hashanah, but actually did it in Pesach. Pesach is the root of Klai Yisrael's formation, the root of Klai Yisrael's coming into being, and it's where we transcended space and time. So we got above the created elements of space and time. That's why Matzah takes up the minimum amount of time and the minimum amount of space uh, before it rises, so both minimum amount of time and minimum amount of space, and it's the root of Klai Yisrael's ability to live on a plane beyond space and time, which the Maharal explains is the idea of Zrizus, of you don't want to allow your mitzvos to become chametz, 
right? Just like you don't want to let your matzos to become chametz. So you don't want to allow, allow your matzos to exist within time too much. You don't want to allow your mitzvos and the way you live life to exist too much within time. You want to live life bezrezos above time, above space. So now we're going to move to the next stage, which is that now we're we're in Elul. We're in Elul, and as we move towards Rosh Hashanah, we want to think about how we can tap into our true makam and into our true existence. And we've developed a lot of ideas so far. But one of the big questions that we haven't addressed is that, okay, we understand makam, we understand the principle of makam, how it connects to Elul, how it connects to Ir Miklot, the power of Rosh Hashanah as we move towards Rosh Hashanah and its connection to Yisrael as tapping into the concept of root makam of reality. But why specifically during Elul do we have this constant makam? Meaning, why not all year long? What is so unique about Elul that we remind ourselves that we always have a place. So we remind ourselves that Kaj Baruch Hu loves us. So we remind ourselves that it, you know it's not too late. Why specifically the last month of the year? This should be at least, you know, maybe the beginning of the year, maybe the middle, maybe all year long. Why specifically at the end? But the idea is powerful. The idea is like this: <clears throat> that at the end of the journey at the end of any journey, but specifically at the end of the year, when you're losing the inspiration, when you're losing that light, when you're losing that source of why you're doing what you're doing, who you are, the motivation to keep moving forward, specifically at the end, HaKadosh Baruch ensures that you can overcome the difficulty of that struggle, of that darkness, of the, the desire to give up. And you have to think about it like this. We just mentioned how Rosh Hashanah is the racious, is the source, but it's the source of the upcoming year. At Elul, we're at the end of that year, the, the, that shefa, that energy, that light, that source of existence is running low. We're about to run out. The year is about to end, and naturally, the year should just come to an end. The fact that there's a new Rosh Hashanah, a new creation of the world, obviously, Kaddish Baruch Hu creates the world constantly, but in terms of the cycle of a new year, that's a Bechir of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Hashem will choose to recreate the world. It doesn't have to happen. So Elul is the very end point. It's where there's the, the you can argue, the lowest point of the year from, some, from a certain perspective. And it's at that time where we really do lose inspiration, where... Not only do we have to remind ourselves that, yeah, like it's a serious time, we're coming to Rosh Hashanah, but it's also like we're, we're tired, it's been a long year. And we're struggling. And specifically at that point, Hashem says, here's a makam. You can do this. You have infinite potential. I am your source and I'm giving you, I'm giving you some firm footing so you can start building your momentum again. It is never, ever too late. And you can think of it almost like a battery. It's like Rosh Hashanah is the battery and the battery is about to run out. Elul is like the end of that battery. We're going to get a new battery, hopefully, in Rosh Hashanah time, but now we're running on low energy. And Elul is, you know, as, as, as poetic as you want to make it, it really is. It's shining a light in that darkness. It's gaining that foot and gaining that inspiration when you just want to call it quits. And Akash Baruch Hu is telling us that we have a place no matter how much we've seemed to disconnect ourselves from Hashem, that it's never to leave. And the Maharal says something powerful. He says, what's Teshuva? So we've talked about how before Teshuva means return, returning to your higher self. But if you look at the word Teshuva, Teshuva comes from the root, from the root Shav or Shuv. 
So the Maral says something unbelievable. He says that if you look at the word shuv or shav, which means to return, it's shin and bays. So it, it bays is the second letter of the alf base, and shin is the second to last letter of the alf base. Why? So he says something unbelievable. He says we go from shin, from the very end, from the most distant letter of Aleph Beis, being most distant from its source, to the absolute root to Beis, to that which is close to Akash Baruch Now what are you going to ask me? What are you talking about? Shin is not the last letter, and Beis is not the first letter. It should be At, or Ta. You know, it should be from Aleph to Tafur, uh, or to Tafur from Taf to Aleph. What are you, what are you talking about? Shuv, Beis, and Shin. So he says something unbelievable. He says that Kaj never, ever lets you get to the last stage. Meaning, it'll never get to the point where it's absolutely impossible, absolutely evil, absolutely disconnected from Hashem. And you can also never get to Aleph. So we're not going to talk about it now, but Atbash, the idea of the Aleph base is basically Aleph is the root of the Aleph base, it's the most spiritual, it's transcendent. Aleph has no sound, it's gematria of one, it's oneness, it's the most ethereal, aluf, Aleph, the, these are words which reflect spiritual concepts, which we're not going to go into right now, but Aleph is the highest and Taf is the most expressed, the most physical, the most distant from its root. Obviously it can reflect the root, but it's the most distant. And it's the most physical, it's the, it's the lowest of all the Aleph base, most corporeal. So we can never get to the tough. We'll always be on the Shin. That's the lowest you can possibly get. But here's the question. We're also, why can't we get to the Aleph? You can never get to the Aleph because Aleph is the root itself. And especially in this world, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to access our actual perfect self. We're always going to have something left to accomplish. We're always going to have room for improvement. Uh, Chazal say that the biggest Yitzhar one can have is to think they're already perfect. Esav is a sui. He came out with fully hairy. He thought he was perfect. Now, that's the idea of, of your ego convincing you that there's nothing left to learn, nothing left to accomplish. You know everything. Tamil Chacham can say to himself, I don't need to learn anymore. I've learned it all. But someone who's a real Tamil Chacham is a Talmud, and that's his Chachma. He's a student always, and that's the source of his wisdom, and that he's always learning more. Now, that's the real idea of teshuva. Teshuva is from shin back to base. It's saying that I've come far from my root, and I can go back. Now, you can ask a question. You can say, okay, but teshuva, actually, it's really, it is tough shin. But that could be a deeper idea here as well, which is that the tough before the shin is what you think it is. You think you're all the way to the tough. You think you're completely disconnected from Hashem, but really, as far as anyone has come, and obviously, you know, for someone who's really fallen, they might think they're at the tough, they're at the shin. Not everyone, some of us have had great years, but even, even if you've had a great year, you know you can accomplish more. You know you can accomplish more. So relative, in your own world, you can say, I'm going from shin to base. And it might look like you're tough. It might look like all hope is lost. It might look like there's no way to connect back to Hashem. No. You're never tough. It's always shin to base. And let's delve, uh, probably for our last deep principle before we wrap things up, let's, let's delve into one last idea because I want to I wanna just carry this home. Hashem never, ever allows something to fully disconnect from its root. Meaning what? Meaning evil, the concepts of evil and darkness, 
they can never completely take over and have complete control. They can never, ever cause a complete breakdown. There's no such thing. That's really the root of what we just said in the Maharal. You can never get to tough, it's always going to be shin. Why not? Why can't Akash Baruch let it get to like complete breakdown? Why can't you get to the tough? Why, why not? So Ramchal says in Das Funos, in Kuflamid, he says that Hashem never allows this to happen. Never allows this to take place. It's impossible. Why? I mean, the question is a real big question because if you think about it, the Ramchal in Das Funos explains that there's two real purposes to existence. There's two reasons why Akash Baruch created the world. The first is what most of us know. The Ramchal actually says this in almost all his form, Hashem, Yisil Shisharim. He says this for us, and us, obviously. The reason is because he wants us to be able to perfect ourselves and achieve our ultimate perfection and connect with Hashem. We've talked about that before. That's the most famous answer. We're in this world. It's a prusador. We're here in this world to become our ultimate selves, to achieve our perfection, to connect with Hashem. But there's another purpose to creation as well, which is to reveal the ultimate oneness and the goodness of a Kaj Baruch Hu. Now, the two answers are intertwined. We're not going to get into that right now. But in order to reveal the ultimate goodness and the ultimate oneness of Hashem, the Ramchal explains that Hashem had to create the ultimate breakdown. The opposite of oneness is breakdown and corruption. And the ultimate evil. The opposite of the ultimate goodness is the ultimate evil. So Akash Baruch created a world where evil is able to exist and breakdown and corruption is able to exist. But not only did he do that, but he allowed it to get to its ultimate ultimate version of that, which is why the world has become so corrupt and broken down and doesn't reveal the goodness and doesn't reveal Hashem. Because why? Because if you want to reveal the ultimate good, you have to show how Hashem can overcome the ultimate evil. If you want to reveal the ultimate oneness, you have to reveal that how Hashem is able to basically create the ultimate oneness from a world which is completely corrupt and broken and shattered and doesn't reveal that oneness. So the world is an expression of the opposite of what Hashem wants to reveal, so that when, when Mashiach comes, Hashem does reveal it, we're able to see, th- through contrast, how goodness overcame the ultimate evil, how oneness was created from the ultimate breakdown and corruption. That's why Ra literally means breakdown, it means corruption, shatter. So here's the question. If the purpose of the world is for us to achieve the ultimate good, for Hashem to reveal the ultimate goodness, for Hashem to reveal the ultimate oneness, then shouldn't there be a complete breakdown, meaning for evil to get to the tough, for evil to get as completely broken and shattered as possible, for the world to become as corrupt and as as almost like, you know, as, as impossible to see Hashem as possible? Shouldn't there be the ultimate evil in the world? Why would Hashem never let things get to their ultimate breakdown? It contradicts the principle that the ultimate goodness can only be revealed by the ultimate evil. The ultimate oneness can only be revealed by the ultimate breakdown, the ultimate shattering of that oneness. So why wouldn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu allow us to get to tough? Why wouldn't Hashem allow the world to get to the ultimate, ultimate disconnected state of reality? And yet the Ramchal says that the world is never going to reach that complete breakdown and complete evil. So there's several different answers, I think. One is based on what we said before, which is that the only way anything can exist in this world is if it's connected to Hashem, if Hashem creates it. And the only way that something can exist in this world is if it, its root is still good, meaning if it's still connected in some way to Hashem. Think of it as a, a circuit of electricity. If you cut off the circuit, the electricity can no longer continue to flow and 
if HaKadosh Baruch is continuing to willing us into existence, it has to stem from Hashem's will. There has to, and Hashem's will always, the root is always good. Which the Ramchal explains in the Asuras, how even evil itself stems from goodness. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to reveal that at the end of the days. That's the, the ultimate revelation, is how evil itself is a form of goodness, and it reveals the ultimate good, and it really, even metaphysically, it is simply a corruption of goodness, but it's made out of goodness. Like, evil literally is goodness. And that's what the ultimate revelation will be, that everything bad that happened in your life was good. Not that it only like helped you achieve the good, but that there is an aspect of goodness within that itself. Very, very deep idea. So if evil has to always have, be sourced and rooted in goodness, then it can't be absolute evil. There always has to be an aspect of goodness left, and therefore it can never be tough, which is completely removed. It can never get to say where it's completely shattered, completely removed from its root. Because that wouldn't exist. Then it wouldn't be. Then it wouldn't be able to have existence. Because in order to exist, I have to have a makam. In order to have a makam, you have to be rooted in some aspect. Even if it's only a little bit. Even if we're all the way at chin, you're, and it's all completely covered, completely corrupted. As long as the root is good, you can exist. But once you get to tough, where you're completely disconnected, it's the fullest, fullest, fullest expression of evil that can exist. Second reason is free will. In order for us to have free will, there has to be some aspect of goodness. If the world is so shattered that there's no iota of goodness left, we have no chance of choosing good. So the only way we can overcome evil is if there's some light, some goodness left. And the third answer is that it would be impossible to rebuild that oneness. Because only something rooted in goodness Rooted in perfection can reattain that perfection. So, for example, we've talked about many times how the Gemara in Nida Daflamin Amabe says that when you learn Kolotor Klu in the woman, you forget it. But it's still there inside yourself. It's just hidden. And our job in life is to reattain that perfection. We've talked about this many times. The Ramchal, the Arizal, the Vilna go and talk about how there's always three stages. The first stage is the inspiration, that perfection. Next stage is you lose it. And the third stage is you rebuild it. You re- reattain it for yourself. You earn it yourself it has to still be there at root. In order to rebuild it, you still have to be connected to it at root. And the reason why evil can't be complete is because if evil was complete, then it would no longer have a root of perfection and goodness, and we wouldn't be able to reattain that state of perfection. We wouldn't be able to reveal the ultimate goodness, reveal the ultimate oneness, and achieve our ultimate perfection because it would no longer be our root, because we'd be completely disconnected from it. And that's why the Ramchal says in Atsunas that Hashem never lets evil completely succeed. He always leaves a little spark, a little root, like, and obviously the ultimate root, but that root of goodness. So it can return to its true state. And that's really the beautiful idea that Ramchal gives many different mashalim. But, and this will honestly blow your mind. So the first easy example of this idea is getting sick. So when you're healthy, you're in your root state. You get sick, but as long as you're still alive, you can get better, right? Meaning what? You can recover and revert back to your healthy self. That's the idea. Okay, simple idea. But there's a more powerful example of this idea. And, and this will blow your mind. Blow your mind. It's death and tchiyas So how does tchiyas occur? Tchiyas occurs because death is never complete. If death were complete, Tchiyas would not be able to occur. What did HaKash Baruch Hu do? This is so beautiful. HaKash Baruch Hu created a way that at the very root of your guf and your neshama, 
the root of your guf and neshama reside within this world always. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to rebirth in this world. So you have an eternal root in your body and your soul in this world, and it's the idea of, at least in your body, what's the idea in your body? It's the luzbam. So the body breaks down, decomposes, disintegrates, you're done. The bones also. The loose bone, as the Gemara talks about in many places, this, this loose bone always remains intact. And that's where stems from, the loose bone. The part of your body that is infinite, well, eternal, and cannot break down, cannot die. And the body regrows from that. And, and the svar, by the way, is powerful. As far as that, the loose bone only gets its sustenance from the food from the food that you eat on Matzai Shabbos. So think about that. Here's the, the beautiful idea. It's, it's amazing. Mortality, remember we spoke about the Ramban, the Ramban says the mortality and the fact that we die stems from Adam having eaten from the Eitzadas. Right? Adam ate from the Eitzadas when? On Friday. The loose bone was unaffected by eating from the Eitzadas because the loose bone only gains its sustenance from the food that you eat on Matzah Shabbos. So the Eitzadas didn't affect the loose bone. And therefore, the loose bone remains unaffected and remains immortal. Unbelievable. So you have an immortal aspect of your guf, of your body. The Neshama's eternal aspect in this world, obviously you have five sages, you have the Nefesh, Ruach, the nefesh, there's an aspect of the nefesh that remains eternally in this world, and that's the hevla de garme, the vapor of the bones. And it's mentioned, it's uh, many mamari I'll talk about this. It's the lowest level of the nefesh that remains connected to the loose bone. So it's the aspect of your soul that's connected to the aspect of your guf, and those two aspects, the level of your soul is connected to you. Nefesh is really connected to your entire guf, but the nefesh of the nefesh, I mean the lowest part of the nefesh, that's connected to the loose bone, and those two aspects are the eternal aspects of your body and soul in this world from which Tchiasimism reoccurs from, from which Tchiasimism occurs from, and where you will come back into this world from. And the idea is basically that the nefesh can never be removed from the body. Right? Why? Because... The body can't exist without the nefesh. The, the physical is always a reflection and expression of the spiritual. So the physical needs to be connected to the spiritual in order for it to exist. You are Your physical body is an expression of your soul. So if the body stems from and gets its form from the nefesh, there has to be an aspect of the nefesh still connected to the loose bone for the loose bones to stay here. It's like Chomer and Surah. You need to have a higher form to the matter. So they basically together create the foundation of Tchais Mesim. Unbelievable. And here's where it gets even more amazing. The base Hamikdash has the same idea. And this is in the Otsos Ramchal. You can find it actually if you want to look on, on page 251. The same idea of, of, of death and Tchais Mesim occurs for the base Hamikdash. What? So what's the part of the, the, the body that will never be destroyed from the base Hamikdash? I'm sure you can guess it. The kotel, the kotel is the loose bone of the base hamikdash. Is the part of is the part of the guf of the base hamikdash that will never be destroyed. What's the part of the neshama? It's the shechina which still rests here, the hevel dagarmi, so to speak. Is the part of a kash baruch that still manifests in this world, and that's most potently connected to the kotel in the makom hamikdash, and together they create the foundation upon which the third base hamikdash will be rebuilt. 
If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. That that's just like unbelievable. And I'll tell you if you want a, a cool svara, a cool proof if you want. The stone that Yaakov slept on in Parshas Vayitzay. Yaakov sleeps on the stone, and Shlomo Malach later incorporated that stone into the Beis Hamikdash. What was the location of that stone, from which Shlomo then inserted into the Beis Hamikdash? The location of that stone was dun 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 dun. Lose. Where else did we hear lose from? Oh yeah, lose bone. Lose in the Beis Hamikdash. The Kotel's still residing here. Wow. Unbelievable. The Beis Hamikdash literally has its own lose bone. If you want to think of it, it's also Klai Yisrael. Klai Yisrael, we're in Golis, and we're going to obviously bring the Geula. We're in the Ikvist uh, Mashicha. It's the, the lowest level that that we've come to, but we're never going to sink beyond beyond repair. We're always going to have hope. We're always connected to an eternal life source, and we basically have our own lose bone. And that's that's really the, the conclusion, is that there's there's always a root good, a root light in every situation event, and there's always hope. There's no such thing as beyond hope. There's no such thing as giving up. There's no such thing as it's, it's you know, called quits. It's hopeless. And I'll give you a couple other just really quick examples before we wrap this up and bring this back. Noach. Noach was that last spark, right? Kaj Baruch destroyed all the evil in Dor HaMabal, but ensured that there was one last spark left to restart the world. Moshe Rabbeinu. When Kaj Baruch was going to restart Klai Yisrael from Moshe Rabbeinu, obviously Moshe convinced him not to, and there's a deep idea that Kaj Baruch was helping Moshe become the leader who wanted Klai Yisrael. In order to do that, he had to threaten to destroy Klai Yisrael, so Moshe would basically say, no, I want Klai Yisrael. Meaning, it was a leadership principle that Moshe had to become a leader that wanted to be the leader of Klai Yisrael, and only by threatening to destroy Klai Yisrael was Moshe going to defend them to the point where he could become that leader. That's a whole other idea. We can talk about that a different time. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu threatened to start over Klai Yisrael from Moshe, you know, like that Luzbon, like that last spark, that would restart. And I'll give you one really fascinating thing, which you can think about in terms of the relationship we talked about already, the relationship between Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. So the, the world starts in Rosh Hashanah, but it really also starts in Pesach. This same exact principle applies to Adar. We're not going to go into it right now, but we can give the same whole shear on how Adar is this, the, the, where the inspiration fades, where it's a month of death. Really, Adar was the point of spiritual death. It's why... Haman was so happy that the lottery, that the poor, fell out on Adar. Because Adar is the month of spiritual death. Think about it. Moshe died in Adar, the seventh of Adar. And El is the last, the last month of the Tishra year, and Adar is the last month of the Nisan year. And if Moshe died in Adar, it's, it's, if you look at some sources, Moshe's death represents the death of Torah in a deep way. And Haman was excited. This is going to be the death of Klai Yisrael. That's why Odar, in some sense, has such a, a really tragic mazel, a, a tragic theme, until we realize that the tragedy of Odar is v'nahafachu, it's flipped. That instead of being a point of death, it's a point of life. As opposed to being a point of endpoint, it's a point of rebirth. Because not only did Moshe die in Adar, in the seventh of Adar, he was also born then. Not only did Torah die in Adar, Moshe died in Adar, but Adar then became the point of rebirth of Torah. <laughs> What was it? It was the birth. Uh, someone's at the door. My wife's going to get it. <laughs> but 
What happened? Torah became reborn in Adar Thruat, the birth of Torah Shval Peh. Kimu Vekiblu. Klai Yisrael accepted Torah. And that was not only the not, not only did we counter the death of Moshe Rabbeinu, but we took it to the next level, which is the ultimate beauty of this idea. That it seems like it's the end. It seems like there's no hope. It seems like it's destruction. It seems like everything's done. And oh my gosh, it became the exact opposite. It became the point of rebirth. Became the point of taking it a step further. Which is a beautiful, beautiful idea. I'll share one last example. For those who are taking notes, this is uh, obviously you see how everything interconnects. How you can add these to your files. One last example is this interesting principle, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent us into Golos. We talked about Hashem sending us into Golos. Hashem sent us into Golos after 850 years. But He's supposed to send us into Golos after 852 years. So the, the big question that Chazal ask is why did Hashem send us out of Eretz Yisrael two years early? The principle is, is, is important. It's fascinating, right? Because what happened? Hashem, Hashem sends us in order to save us. And the principle is like this. The Pasuk in the Torah says that after many years in Eretz Yisrael, we're going to become completely disconnected from Hashem. That's the Nevuah. And there's a Pasuk in Veschanan. If you want to look it up, it's in Perak Dalit, Pasuk Chafei. And the Pasuk says, when you'll have, when you have been there for a long time, you'll grow corrupt and you'll do evil. So, if you want to think about it, it's interesting. The context of this is that it's discussing how Klai Yisrael will come at Mitzrayim and enter into the Makom of Eretz Yisrael. So again, we're talking about Makom. And once we get to entering into the Makam of Yisrael, Hashem's telling us after many years we're going to get so far from that original ideal, that original light, that we're going to become completely disconnected and we're going to cease to exist. That tough. We're going to get that tough. Forget Shin, we're going to get that tough. So therefore, Kosh Baruch Hu is going to kick us out in order to save us. So what's the source of 852? Why, why 852 years? So the Gemara in Gittin, Andaf Pei, Chesam and Aleph and Sanhedrin and Aflam and Chesam and Aleph says that it comes from one of the words in that Pasuk. In the Pasuk of Eschanan, the word Vinoshantem. Vinoshantem adds up the Gemara, Vinoshantem, here you see a literally, uh, a literal example of Gemara in the Gemara, adds up to 852, and it means that you will have been there for a long time. But it also means, the thing comes from that same, same root as Yashan, which, is, which means old, and it means sleep. What's the connection? So there's basically, this is the svara for our disintegration. It's why we're going to break down. It's because we're going to have been there for a long time in Eretz Yisrael and we're going to fall asleep. Remember what I talked about? How when we're in Galas and we don't fully appreciate and tap into the fact that we need to connect back to our Malcolm, we get comfortable, we go into a deeper Galas and a deeper Galas and a deeper Galas. It's that same idea. And there's two forms of aging. One is zakain, which is when you get old by growing and gaining in wisdom and you become better and better, your mind becomes more elastic, you become greater as you age, as you evolve. And really, zakain stands for zek kona chachma, someone who's kona chachma, someone who becomes a bal chachma. But you can also grow old by becoming a yashan, someone who grows old and starts falling asleep. Someone who starts forgetting why they're here, starts just living and being and existing but not living with purpose not living with passion not striving not growing not contributing their lives to Klai Yisrael not contributing their time energy and focus to increasing the, the Gilui HaKadosh Baruch in the world and that person just gets tired gets lazy and that's 
the source of this 852 years where we just grow old in the wrong way. So why 850? Because the Kodesh Baruch Hu sent us out after 850, that's two years early. What's the idea? So just to count, right? We have 410 years in Eretz Yisrael until Shlomo built the base of Mekdash. And we have four, 440, sorry, until Shlomo. 410 years of the first base of Mekdash. So that's 850. So why did Kodesh Baruch Hu kick us after 850? It should have been 852. Yeah, I think you can actually see this in the, the Gemara that mentions that in Yoma, Daftasim and Aleph. So the Sefer should be quite obvious right now. It's so that we don't get to the absolute end point. 852 is when we cease to exist. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us out early so we don't get to the point of absolute destruction. So that we still have that root. We're still connected to that root and we still have the ability to return and come back. Shuv, not tough. Shin, not tough. So here's the question. Okay, I understand the idea. Hashem sends us into Gullus and makes us lose our Malcolm so that we can actually preserve our Malcolm and reconnect to our Malcolm and come back to Hashem. So Gullus, as we've been explaining, is a Tikkun. You lose your Malcolm, but you're still connected to a Malcolm, and ultimately you'll come back to your true Malcolm. But it should be 851 years, not 852. So the, we're not going to get into it now. This is a, a classic gematria principle, which is that all the components of anything creates a oneness, and that oneness also has an extra gematria. So we've talked about many times how Desler explains that when we take pieces together and you fit them in the right way, it creates something which transcends the sum of its parts. We talked about how the seven connects to the eighth, how you know good marshals of radio, put the radio in the right way, connect all the pieces together. What do you get? A radio frequency. Human being connected in the right way. You're alive. You can exists as a living being, what happens? You, have, you can have a soul which resides within the body, that which is transcendent, that which transcends the physical body. So when you have 850 and you connect that all together, the kolo, the, the, when you basically put all the pieces together of, of gamacha, which literally numbers are pieces, you put the pieces together of the number, you can always add one. So really we get to 850 is 851, and of took us out one year before we left. That is more of a parenthetical idea, you don't need to really, it's not like such a big question. It doesn't need to be 851. But if you want to say, okay, I want to get to the very end point before Akash Baruch Hu kicks us out, why isn't 851? 850 also equals 851. Now let's bring it back. Full circle. We live in this world. It's a physical world. We need to connect to our makam. We need to connect to our own makam in terms of our own self, our self-worth, our self-value, our self-purpose, why we're in this world. What did you learn? Need a 30B while you were in the womb? What did you learn? You learned cultural cool. The Venlagon says you learned your Torah, your purpose, what you were supposed to accomplish in this world. Why are you here? What are you living for? What's your purpose? That's what we need to be thinking about. How do I connect to our and how do I connect to my place in this world? Why did HaKadosh Baruch create me? Why is HaKadosh Baruch creating me right now? What am I here for? What can I do? What can I learn? What can I become? What can I contribute? How can I think in a more developed way? How can I become a greater version of myself? How can I become more aware, more present, more passionate, more excited? How can I just develop my mitos? How can I build better relationships? How can I just think about all the aspects of my life and just make my life a project and fall in love with the journey? How can I start loving growing? And if I love growing, how can I start loving it more? How can I start taking it to the next level? It's We need to think about 
how we can become better. We need to realize that you have hope. You have hope, and it's never, ever too late. And I'll share a story right now, which I've, I've shared before, and I'm sure that at least 50% of you have heard before. And if you haven't heard this, this is an amazing, amazing story. If you have heard it before, there's no such thing as hearing this enough times. The story goes like this. There was a man who was on a train. And he looked really nervous. He looked really nervous, and there was an old man sitting right across from him who said, listen, you look really nervous. Is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to help? The young man thought about it for a minute and said, listen, there's nothing, I have nothing to lose. I might as well just tell you. So basically, I'm sitting on this train right now, and I'm awaiting something really important because I grew up in, in a religious Jewish family, and my parents gave me everything, love, support, encouragement, and I became a rebel. I hated them. I hated Judaism. I hated myself. I hated everything. I wouldn't go to shul. I wouldn't daven. I wouldn't learn. I disrespected my parents. I cursed them. I was horrible to them, and I stole from them, and I lied to them, and they kept trying every single day. And they were loving people, and I wouldn't have any of it. I rejected everything. And it got to a point where I just was ready to leave. I just didn't like them. I didn't like what they stood for. I was uh, just unhappy being around them. And I let them know it. And one day, I just got up and left. And I started a business with some friends. And I went completely off the derech. That's it. Until... A couple months later, my friends, so to speak, I thought they were my friends, they backstabbed me. And they stole all my money, and they completely blindsided me. And I lost everything. I lost the friends I thought I had. I lost all my money. And for the past couple of years, I've been asking favors from people, trying to make connections, trying to make it, and no one's ever been there for me. I lost everything. I have no reputation. I have no money. And... I was going to give up. I was actually considering ending my life. And I was on the brink of taking that last step when I realized there's one connection, there's one last possible source of hope that I haven't thought of asking in the past couple of years. And it's my parents. I haven't spoken to them. I haven't spoken to them in three, four years. It didn't even cross my mind to ask them because why would they have? Why would they help me? I haven't shown them any love, respect, care, dignity. Never answered their phone calls. Never answered their letters. One time, I think they tried to visit me, and I. Re- went out the back door I, I've i been the worst son you can possibly imagine why would they why would they help me but I had no other options and I was losing hope very quickly so I sent them a letter and I said 
next Tuesday, I'm going to take the train that goes right by your house. And if you're willing to take me back, put a white flag on that tree in the front yard. I know I don't deserve it. I know I've been horrible. I've been disrespectful. I've rejected everything you stand for. And I have made your life miserable ever since I was young. But I'm begging you to help me. I have no one else. I have no other options. Everyone else has turned their back on me. And I'm just asking you to please forgive me. And I fully understand if you can't. I fully understand if you don't want to have anything to do with me because honestly, if I were in your position, I would rip up the letter at this point and I wouldn't still be reading at this point in the letter. I don't know if you are still reading, but if you are, thank you for that. But if you don't want to see me, then that's fine. Just don't put a white flag on the tree. I said sincerely, your son. He turns to the old man and he says, right now I'm I'm on that train, it's Tuesday. And we're about to pass the house, it's on this in the street, and I'm getting really nervous, as you can tell. And the old man says, if, if you want, I'm happy to look for you. If it would make you feel a little better, I see that you're literally shaking. And uh, the younger man says, that, that would be amazing. I, I can't look, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm about to pass out, I can't look. And he tells older man, in about two blocks is going to be that house. You just look on the right. Let me know. A minute goes by, and the old man is waiting. He's looking. And all of a sudden, he gasps. And he says, you have to look. You have to look. The young man says, what do you mean? He says, you have to look yourself. The young man looks up. And there wasn't a flag on the tree. There were hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of white flags, white towels, white shirts, anything you can imagine. The entire tree was decorated from trunk to the top. You couldn't see any of the tree anymore. All you see is white. Gets off the train. Embraces his parents and he asks his parents I don't understand I don't understand why in the world why are you taking me back and the parents tell him a story story of a soldier who goes off to war and he's about to come back home and he makes that phone call I have a friend Missing a limb, missing an arm, missing a leg, deformed face. The parents say, please don't bring him home. Next day, see the casket. Cry, because they didn't realize he wasn't talking about a friend, he was talking about himself. And the parents told him, we will never make that mistake. Because a parent loves their child. And a parent will never give up on their child. There will always be a place for you in our home. We will love you no matter what. We never stopped 
We never will. There will always be a place for you. And that's Elo. That is Elo. We are in this makam. We're in this world. And we're in this world because Hashem is willing us into being. Hashem is thinking about us right now. Hashem wants us to become great, to achieve our greatness, to fulfill our potential, to connect with Him, to think about Him, to bring His presence into this world, to connect with the people around us, to bring light and goodness into this world. And you know what? Those ideas sound fluffy. They're not. Start living with those ideas in your life. Light, goodness, purpose, vision, dreams, accomplishment, growth, energy, excitement, meaning. Live a life of purpose. Live a life of vision. Because that's what Elo is about. It's a time of dreaming about what your year is going to be like. Creating big goals and creating a concrete step-by-step plan. How are we going to actually make this year different? A Devar Torah is nothing if you don't become someone different afterwards. If you don't think about how to actualize, how to make it the reality, how to put in the work so that we are living with a higher vision. Not just living with a dream inside of what we want our life to be like, but making it something we are actually doing, something we need to do. And Elo is a time where we realize that we will always have a place. We can always become greater. We are never at that tough. We are never lost. We are never a lost cause. It is never time to call it quits. You can always achieve a higher level of yourself. You have so much in you. You have so much in you. And now is the time to start thinking about how to bring it out. How to start going back to that root source of who you are, that root source of reality, connecting to your personal makam, connecting to Akash Baruch Hu on an infinite scale. And you have to realize that as much as we fail in life, we are never a failure. Do not identify yourself by what you've done wrong. You are a chilek al-kamal, you are built b'tzalam al-kim, you have extraordinary greatness within you. And once you realize that you've done something wrong, but you are not that which you have done, that at root you are always something extraordinary, at root, you're perfect and your job in this world is just to become who you really are, what you're capable of, what you saw in the womb, the vision of what your greatness is, what, unique, what your unique purpose is. You start living life with passion and you start testing yourself out. What skills, what talents, what can you do, what can you accomplish? What's your chilek and Torah? What can you become passionate about? What can you become excited about? How can you live on a higher level? And you start to realize that not only is there a place for you, but there's a place for everyone. And you start helping other people find meaning and purpose in their lives. And you start drawing other people in. And that first stage is always there's a place, acceptance, making space for someone else. Not making them what you want them to be. Not saying, oh, you're only my friend, only my child, only my loved one, if you do what I want you to do. But you start with that unconditional love. Because that's what the Kaddish Baruch Hu does for us in El. Unconditional love. Hashem is our makam. And it's El. It's time to tap into that. So my bracha to all of us is that we tap into El. We tap into the fact that El is our ear miklat. El is our makam. 
It's an opportunity to connect Hashem in the deepest way. And when we connect Hashem in the deepest way, when we love Hashem, we start to connect to ourselves in the deepest way as well. And when we connect ourselves in the deepest way, we connect Hashem in the deepest way. It's a never-ending cycle. Increasing self-awareness, increasing greatness. Just make your life a journey. And make this album the first stage in taking your journey towards its ultimate destination. Dream big, have a vision, then create a concrete plan so that this L becomes the beginning of something extraordinary.